And it just made me think what it meant for that butterfly to be alive. How was it related to me being alive? Frankly, what was life anyway? Hello and welcome to Season 6 of the Waterstones Podcast. I'm Will Rycroft, and never one to shy away from a challenge, we're going to tackle possibly the biggest question of them all. What is life? So Paul Nurse is a Nobel Prize winning geneticist and director of the Francis Crick Institute. His work on the cell cycle has helped develop our understanding of how cells develop and divide, with far-reaching implications for the future treatment of diseases like cancer. His book, What is Life?, seeks to explain biology in five simple steps. And as we sat down to talk about it, I asked about the personal details from his own life that had illuminated his work. As we continue to record the podcast remotely, apologies for the slight interference on this episode, but it is worth it for discovering the origin of all life on Earth. Paul, welcome to the Waterstones podcast. Thank you so much for making some time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Obviously, having a book with the title What is Life, that is, that's about as big as questions get. Um, and what you try to do in this book is to help even laymen like me to understand biology in five simple steps. Um, we will talk about some of those steps as we go through uh, this little conversation. But I wanted to start, if we could, sort of at the beginning, really, which for you was noticing a butterfly and I wondered whether you could tell us what it was about seeing this butterfly that suddenly sort of sparked something in your brain and got you interested in science and, and in genetics in particular. Yes I can. It, um, I was um, um, a teenager or just a bit before 10, 11, 12, can't quite remember my age and I was sitting in my parents garden it was a sunny day early in spring, and I saw this yellow butterfly coming over the fence. It sort of flitted about. I disturbed it. It flew around the garden a bit and then disappeared over the other fence going um, into the next garden. And it just made me think about that butterfly, um, what it meant for that butterfly to be alive. How was it related to me being alive? And frankly, what was life anyway? And I remember that occasion, and it sort of stayed with me for many, many years, and probably was one of the um, events that started me thinking about science and biology in particular. And I perhaps thought this was the time when I should try and write something about it, which is why I wrote What is Life? It's amazing that sort of something as simple as seeing a, a butterfly in your garden can lead to a, an incredibly distinguished career, uh, a knighthood, uh, the Nobel Prize. I mean, all sorts of things happen in your career, but I was very encouraged to see that, in fact, it, it wasn't quite as auspicious a start as it could have been because you actually struggled to get into university because of the stumbling block of the French O-level. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, I can. I'm happy to do so. Uh, um, the truth was, um, I, I didn't come from an academic family. It was a working class background. Um, I wasn't very good at exams. Um, uh, I was highly erratic. Sometimes I did quite well, sometimes not so well. But I was an enthusiast. I was really curious about um, all sorts of things, including science, including biology. But uh, uh, despite that, I wasn't good at everything. And to get into university at the time, this was the late 60s, you needed to have... Um, qualifications in, in a, a, a range of subjects, one of which was a foreign language. And I'm absolutely hopeless at foreign languages. I don't quite know why. And it's, it's, I'm 
I'm ashamed of it, but it's absolutely true. And I managed to fail French O-level. That's a, a precursor to the GCSE. And I managed to fail it six times because <laughs> I needed this qualification to get in. And I, um, I, I had all sorts of offers based on this O-level French, which I never managed to pass. And in fact, I left school, went um, uh, as a technician in a local brewery, the Guinness Brewery in Park Royal, West London. And then eventually, one of the universities I applied to, the University of Birmingham, rescued me. Um, a professor of genetics contacted me and said, we like your A-level grades. Maybe you could come up and talk to me, which I did. And uh, they waived the um, need to have this O-level French. Although there was a sting in the tail, they um, said, um, although we waive it, you'll have to sit a course in French in your first year at university. <laughs> And um, that I had to do. What I was, again, encouraged to hear about through your book was the amazing achievements that you've had obviously involve other people, but also involve a fair element of luck. And I always love this about science is that it often involves lovely moments of luck to have these huge discoveries. Uh, to very quickly sort of explain to listeners, your area of work has been um, around the cell and in particular the cell cycle. And what's called the CDC2 gene, which is to do with how cells divide and reproduce. And I loved the fact that discovering that, which is a huge discovery, and it was what you won the Nobel Prize for, involved not just one, but sort of two pieces of luck. One piece of luck to discover the first part of the puzzle, and then the second piece of luck, which involved literally retrieving a Petri dish from the bin. Could you tell us a little bit more about how luck played a part in, in this really important discovery? Yes, I, I'm very happy to do that, because science... It is often, um, at least biological science, often is influenced by luck, being in the right place at the right time, making observations um, that perhaps you weren't looking for, which uh, really means sort of taking account of what nature presents to you uh, and, and just being attentive um, to um, the natural world. Well, you're, you're quite right. My um, research interest was in how cells divide. We're all made up of, of cells, all living things are. And um, the basis of all growth and reproduction is in fact in the growth and subsequent division of a cell from one to two. And that is called the cell cycle. And how that's controlled is very important um, for how living things work and important in disease like um, cancer. And I was working on this problem in a very simple um, organism, um, a yeast, and trying to find um, the genes that um, might be involved in the control of that um, uh, uh, cell, cell cycle. And I didn't really quite know what to look for. I was looking originally for genes that couldn't um, reproduce properly, and that was okay, but it wasn't really um, getting as very close to control. And such um, mutants that couldn't um, reproduce properly uh, what that meant was that they continued to grow. So they became very big, but they could never divide. And then I was looking for such mutants, and suddenly I spotted under the microscope a, a, a little cluster of cells which were dividing at a smaller size than normal. And uh, that, I thought, was very curious. I hadn't seen such a thing before. And then I just started thinking about it. If they're dividing smaller than they um, do normally, that means they're being advanced through the reproductive cycle, the cell cycle, more rapidly than they normally do. And that would mean that um, if they're going through it more rapidly, 
they are likely to be defective in the overall control that determines when cells do divide. And so that um, was completely serendipitous. I wasn't looking for it, and it was just presented to me. I was working in Edinburgh at the time, it's in Scotland, and um, I, um, I called it a, a wee mutant, W-E-E, um, because that's a Scottish word for small. So I originally called that gene wee one um, to um, uh, explain that. Uh, it was very funny 50 years ago. I'm not quite so sure it's so funny now <laughs> after so many years. But it was a, 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 um, a, a, a key to unlocking the start of the problem. So it was completely um, serendipitous. Now, I went on um, with this sort of uh, study um, thinking, well, if I can find more mutants like this, more wee mutants, I'd be able to define the genes that were involved in this process. And went on and looked for these mutants. Very laborious. I'd only get one or two mutants a week. So it was a very hard um, job. You needed lots of um, patience to do it. And every time I got a mutant, I would cross it with the original one and see if it was the same gene. And I set myself the target of getting 50 such mutants to see if we defined one, two, five, ten genes. And every time I did a cross, it was the same gene, we won. And I got through to about 48 of these, and I, I had two or three more to go to complete my 50. It had taken the best part of a year to do this. And I found one still in Scotland, still in Edinburgh, Department of Zoology in Edinburgh University. And I found a new wee mutant under the microscope on a Petri dish. That's a, a, a shallow dish with sort of jelly on it upon which we grow um, um, microbes like yeast. And um, the problem with this wee mutant was that it was contaminated with a, um, a fungus that was nearby. And fungi grow very fast and spread over those plates. So they contaminate what you're trying to um, isolate. And this is very uh, difficult to do. I was tired. It was cold. It was November. It was wet. And I just said, oh, it'll be another wee one mutant. I threw it away in the rubbish bin and went home and had my tea. The rain continued. It Edinburgh, November, and um, then I began to feel guilty. I thought, well, what if it wasn't another wee one mutant? I got back on my bicycle. I was um, not very wealthy. I only had a bicycle. Bicycled back through the rain, retrieved it from the rubbish bin, and started to micromanipulate uh, the yeast away. It took me a week or two to do it because it kept getting contaminated. And you know what I'm going to say next. That was the only mutant that wasn't we one. It was a gene I initially called we two, which is when I realized how ridiculous this name was, <laughs> calling it we two. And it in fact turned out to be this gene CDC2 that you've already mentioned, that was the key component that controls the cell cycle, not only in yeast, but actually also in all other um, living things that we see, like um, animals, plants. Um, fungi and also ourselves so it turned out to be critical I mean do you ever that would sort of keep me up at night I think do you think about what would have happened if you hadn't gone back to the lab and retrieved that dish do you think you would have got there eventually or, or could it have taken many many more years you know I I think it could have taken many more years this wasn't an area that was being heavily researched by others so it's not that somebody else would have probably done it um eventually, I'm sure somebody would have done, it might not have been me, but I think it would have changed my career completely. 
See, you have to listen to that little voice in your head <laughs> and obey it sometimes. You have to listen to it, go back, but mostly <laughs> you have to pay attention to what nature is giving you. Um, as I said, sort of through the book, you, you take us through sort of five stages to explain how biology works. And then eventually, of course, what that leads us to is that fundamental question, which is on the front of the book, which is what is life? And people often struggle with the idea of how life on Earth may have begun. Uh, because it's it's the bit that we can't see in the fossil record. It's the bit that we sometimes struggle to answer with what we know about chemistry or biology. And so there is an element of having to, you know, have ideas and, and put ideas forward. And you resist the temptation to say that there may have been outside forces that brought life to Earth. And you look to find a solution that works for what we now know about how biology and chemistry work together on Earth. And it's almost the sort of chicken and egg sort of situation in a way isn't it because you through the book you you have these sort of three components of life which are dna uh, the proteins that work together with dna and then of course the cell membrane that goes around them and protects cells from the outside environment and there's this real question about which of those must have come first in order to create life on earth um without wanting to sort of i mean you, you can or may not want to sort of give away the sort of secret but can you explain maybe a little bit about how you think life started and, and sort of what that means in terms of our understanding about life on earth well i can have a go the the, the reality is that um we don't really know how life started and uh, uh, defining life what is life is is actually quite difficult um trying to work out how it came about even more difficult because this occurred <laughs> um the first uh, uh, oldest fossils that we see are probably 3500 million years ago this is a gigantic amount of time. Uh, if you think dinosaurs went extinct only 65 million years ago, you can see the sorts of um, lengths of time that we're um, looking at. Now, mm. what you've just described is exactly the situation. The basic unit of life really is the cell. That's the simplest thing that is, we can say, is, is, is truly living. So that's a sort of independent entity bounded by a membrane, as you said. It's what grows and reproduces during the cell cycle and divides. And then uh, within it, it has genes which control how that, cells work, how that cell works. And it does it by making these proteins that are sort of the, um, the, the workhorses of how um, all these things, um, uh, 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 the workhorses that, that carries out all the chemistry. Now, there's something quite interesting here because genes are made up of DNA. That's a chemical. And it's stable. It encodes the uh, sequence of the gene encodes information. Um, it's chemically not very active. Proteins are very, very active. They do lots and lots of different work and they are encoded by the gene. So there's these three components, the cell containing genes, which, uh, it, which uh, are responsible for the um, heredity and um, encode the proteins that uh, make the cells, make the cells work, allow them to reproduce. But they're all connected. So you mm. can't have a gene um, without having proteins who can make the genes. You can't have a gene without it be meaning anything, without it being inside a cell. And it's difficult to know which came first. Now, uh, this has been thought about quite a lot. And the best solution that I know about, but we have no idea if it's really true, is that maybe it was none of those uh, that were, were uh, the 
beginning of life. It was another chemical called RNA. It's related to DNA, but it's a bit more complicated than DNA in the sense it can fold up into different um, shapes and can perhaps carry out, or we know it can carry out, uh, uh, um, chemical reactions and perhaps is able to um, uh, uh, copy itself. So if that was true, you could have in a single molecule, an RNA molecule, um, a chemical that can um, copy itself and a chemical that can also, so it encodes information, and a chemical that can also carry out chemical reactions, uh, enzyme-type reactions. So mm. that would sort of help solve part of the problem. And then uh, what about the cell? Well, maybe this uh, this sort of replicating RNA might survive in certain um, inorganic uh, microenvironments of the sort that you find um, deep in the sea today, uh, these um, vents which have strange microbes associated with them. And some people have speculated that perhaps in these little spaces, um, they would form something a bit like a cell. And if that was true, then perhaps the RNA chemistry could develop. And then if there were lipids about, lipids will form a membrane. They form naturally these spheres. And perhaps that was captured, uh, that perhaps that captured the RNA to make um, a primitive life. But to be quite honest, Will, this is all speculation. We don't really know. But it, you can make a story. It does make some sense. But we just don't know if it's true or not. But it, it, it's my best guess at the moment, not based on anything I've done, but just reading what others have done. And of course, one of the things that we do know, and you talk about evolution through natural selection, and there's a fantastic illustration on the front of your book, which looks like a cross between a, a, a human eye and a tree. And you talk about the tree of life and how all of these branches of life, of course, all feed into the same trunk. And we, you talk about the sort of the single seed that started life. And you are absolutely clear about the fact that life did start just the once because what we know about life is that it all works in the same way and this interconnectedness of life which can sometimes sound like a sort of slightly airy fairy notion you are absolutely fascinated by it in a purely sort of rational scientific way because as you say in the book what it means is that all living things humans and plants and animals are all connected and actually do rely on each other in order to maintain life on earth N none apart from some very specific RNA, as you say, molecules and, and viruses, can survive independent of other things. We need the microbes in our gut. We need the animals and plants that we eat. And life really is connected in that way, isn't it? Yes. So th there's a number of quite difficult concepts there. So let me just go back over one or two of them. The first thing is, it's possible that um, life might have um, ar arisen um, spontaneously um, in uh, several cases. But only one survived, only one survived. And uh, that we say that because it's built on the same chemical architecture of DNA, the same coding, it uses uh, the same components. So it, it's, it's more that only one actually survived. So the one we're looking at now um, all came from a single source. And that's where the basis of um, our uh, interaction comes from, or it's one of the bases. Because that means that every living thing on this planet is, in some sense, our relative. Now, we, we look at an ape, a gorilla, and I talk about a gorilla in the book, for example. Mm. Uh, it's clearly our relative, but so is the humble yeast that I work on is also a relative. <laughs> now, it is true 
that humans and yeast last had a common ancestor probably 1,500 million years ago, not as old as 3,500, but still a very, very long time. But everything on this planet is related to it. And that, I, I feel that's almost philosophical in a sense, if you think about it carefully, mm. because I, I, I think it's an argument for why we should feel responsible for the biosphere, because the biosphere, every living thing here, is related to us. And so mm. surely we have some sort of responsibilities as a guardian for all our relatives out there, some um, very closely related to us, some um, very distantly related. But then the second point that you mentioned, also really important, this sort of fundamental in interaction, because we are all dependent one on another. Uh, you, you mentioned actually um, maybe some life forms. Um, you mentioned a virus. Actually, a virus is completely dependent upon other living things. Uh, so mm. a virus can only um, copy itself, only uh, act as an organism when it's inside another cell of another living thing. So it hijacks it. And that means that, that many people feel um, that viruses are a sort of intermediate life form because um, they can only live, only operate when they're in another living thing. But actually, all of us, every living thing, is to a lesser or greater extent um, dependent upon other um, living organisms, including us humans. I mean, we eat what we eat. Uh, food and so on all comes from other living organisms. Some amino acids we can't make. We have to get them from other living things that, um, that uh, we, we eat or um, are, are growing on us. So we all are dependent one on another. Um, and I think that's very important too, is a sort of ecological argument. So in a sense, although I'm a um, sort of hard-nosed molecular biologist, molecular geneticist, the sort of ecological arguments of respecting life come from those two things, the fact that we're all related, and secondly, we're completely dependent one on another. As you just said there, you're, you're a geneticist, and you've done this incredible work in helping us to understand better how human genes work. Um, but you do share a very personal story in the book about a revelation that came you know, relatively late in your life about your own family genetics. Um, would you mind sharing that with us now and, and maybe telling us a bit about the impact of that in terms of how you felt about your own identity? Yes, well, what you're referring to is the fact that um, I found out rather late in my life, um, in my fifties, um, in fact, um, that my um, my parents were not my parents, and and what had happened was that um, my mother was the person I thought was my sister. Um, she got um, pregnant at seventeen. Um, it was in um, the 1948-49, and at that time, illegitimacy was still um, a a great um, shame um, and people tried to hide it. So she was sent by um, her parents, my grandparents, um, to her aunt who lived in, in um, Norwich in Norfolk. We lived in, in London, in Needham and Wembley and gave birth to me. But then my grandmother came up and pretended she was the mother. And what this meant was that I was handed over from uh, my mother to my grandmother. Um, we all lived in a small flat in, in London, uh, and my real mother um, got married uh, to somebody when I was two and a half, roughly, and so left home, but always kept very strong contact um, with us, in, uh, with uh, the original family where I, I was at. So I was brought up by my grandparents. 
And it was only in the 1950s when I, uh, it, only when I was in, in my 50s that I uh, um, learned this. When I was working in the United States, I was president of a research university, Rockefeller University in New York, and I uh, uh, applied for a green card which I was refused. And that was a bit of a surprise because at the time I had a Nobel Prize. I was president of the university and I was knighted, as you've said. And yet <laughs> Homeland Security turned me down. And they turned me down because of the, um, the bureaucrats. I actually quite admired them for turning me down in a strange way. But they didn't <laughs> like my um, birth certificate. The birth certificate was uh, uh, what was called a short birth certificate. And it didn't name my parents. It said that I was a British citizen and um, where I was born and so on. But it didn't name my parents. What I didn't realize is that short birth certificate was invented um, in the 40s because there was a, a lot of illegitimacy around the Second World War to uh, actually sort of mask, if you like, that the, the, the parents um, were not who, who perhaps they should have been. Right. And um, I, uh, I wrote a way to get the, the long birth certificate because I'd asked my parents, my grandparents, that is. Everybody in my family changed their relationship, by the way. Parents become grandparents, sister becomes mother, and so on. Hmm. So I asked my um, parent, grandparents why I had a short birth certificate. And they must have been very nervous when they answered because I could just get it from the registry office. They said, oh, it was cheaper than a long one. Okay, and um, I believed them for half a century. And anyway, I got the long birth certificate back, and when I read it, um, my parents were not there. Um, my sister was down as the mother, and where my father was is a line, and I to this day do not know who my father is. So it was something... Um, how did I respond to it? It was something that um, was a bit unsettling, but you know what they were doing? Everybody was just doing their best for me, really. Yeah. It, it, it was a working class family. Often, this wasn't so unusual, what I described. Um, a middle class family often would put the baby out for adoption. Um, a working class family would keep it within the family. And they just did their best. And I was brought up by my grandparents, and I'm grateful to them. My mother had a separate family. Um, I would have loved to have talked about it, but she didn't want to disturb her family, I'm sure. I never told her husband, as far as I'm aware. And so it, it remained a secret. But I had a perfectly happy childhood, and it, it all worked out. So I, I, I was unsettled. Um, still, I'm a little bit unsettled, because I'd like to know who my father is. But mm. I just know that they were looking after me. Obviously, through your work, you, you've, you've been on the news quite a lot recently because of the, the, the pandemic that we're all living through. And I know that sort of similar to how we were talking about what's happening with the education system at the moment, that you've, you've had frustrations about how it's been handled. Is it a similar thing about sort of a lack of preparedness that, that has been frustrating you with how we've been dealing with the pandemic? Because I think, obviously, through this podcast, I've been speaking to lots of authors whose books have been dealing with some of the themes and ideas around how we've all been living our lives differently. But as somebody who's involved very much in the scientific side, uh, and, and whose work does deal with sort of disease and, and its sort of control and uh, vaccination, what what is it that has been frustrating you? And, and are you hopeful about um, what will happen in the future after this, even if it is only to learn from our mistakes? Well, the first thing is dealing with a pandemic like this is exceedingly difficult. It's very difficult for politicians. It's very difficult for their advisors. And it's very difficult for those who have to try and implement the policies that the politicians come up with. So mm. I, I don't I, I, we all have to acknowledge that it is difficult. Mistakes will be made for sure. 
because um, uh, when a, a pandemic of an unknown organism takes place, like um, the um, coronavirus, uh, then we don't know enough about it to know how to manage it, let alone um, uh, treat it or eliminate it with a vaccine. And this is going to take many months to sort out, if not um, a, a couple of years. And even then, we're not absolutely sure. So it is difficult. But having said that, and um, we do have to criticize um, how things have, 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 have um, turned out. Firstly, we were totally unprepared. And that, that was really um, a, a disgrace because it, it, it may have been a consequence partly of austerity, of just constantly pulling money out of the, um, out of the system because we hadn't had a virus um, epidemic or pandemic beyond influenza for a long, long time. We had the flu epidemic in um, Spanish flu just after the First World War, of course. Uh, and mm. so it was gradually pushed down the agenda. That was so obviously wrong. We needed to be prepared. We needed to have um, protection equipment. We needed to have a test and trace systems in place. Um, other countries were better um, placed, not all of them um, as well placed as they should have been, but we were pretty much um, unprepared. And that was just wrong, and it was obviously wrong. Uh, we'd done, um, for example, tests on um, uh, uh, trials with uh, uh, several years before, some so-called Cygnus, Cygnus trial, and shown that we weren't prepared for it, and nobody took action. I mean, mm. I, I, the, 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 the government sleepwalked us into this problem. Then when it did happen, um, without being properly prepared, they just made some re really mistaken decisions. I, I mean, the, the main one is at the beginning of such a, a pandemic, the only thing you can do is frankly test, trace, isolate. That's the only protection you have. We've been doing that um, ever since the plagues, really, which is when villages were isolated. It was the same um, approach. And uh, to get that working fast means you had to think very logistically about it. And the government made a mistake. I think it was the Department of Health. It wasn't Public Health England, as far as I'm aware. It's the Department of Health directly to set up big testing labs to do it. That isn't such a bad idea in the long term or if you were prepared for it, but it wasn't a good idea in the short term. And indeed, they contributed, as far as I can tell, because it's been fairly secret, um, as far as I can tell, they haven't contributed, uh, they didn't contribute very much at all, if anything, to the um, pandemic um, peak, which is why in the Crick Institute, where I'm director, um, we immediately set up testing to support local hospitals, care facilities, care homes, and so on as much as we could. And had the government rolled that out across the country, as, and we told them what we were doing, then I think they would have had a much better chance of being able to get on the front foot over this. Now, maybe um, in uh, the, the later parts of this pandemic, the bigger laboratories may work, but not to have done this as, a, at the very least, a stopgap was a big mistake because all the problems you get are local. You know, the IT doesn't work. You don't know where to go. Mm. You don't know about the people. That should have been blindingly obvious, and yet it was not followed, even though they were told about it. So I do criticize um, a lot over that, for, for sure. Well, we can only hope that, uh, that, that things will improve um, as time goes on in all of the things we've been talking about. And uh, as I say, it's 
fantastic to read your book, which manages in, in, in its very concise form to deal with, as I said, the biggest questions, but also to impart a lot of information in a way that's very easy to digest, even for this old lag who's not been in a science classroom for many, many years. Um, so, Paul, thank you so much uh, for the book, but also for, for sharing some of the more personal details about it today, because it really does give a fantastic insight into how you have achieved what you have achieved and thank you for your time today well not at all thank you will for talking to me and you did emphasize one thing i really wanted to underline i try to write a book that everybody could cope with um it's not written for scientists it's written for everybody and i also mm. try to write it in a concise way so that you wouldn't have to spend days and days reading it that um in fact you can get through it fairly quickly and that's what i'm hoping will happen many people will perhaps read it because it's not so difficult to to follow and it's not so long that you get bored with it <laughs> it's a very wise bit of writing advice for almost any writer i would have said but but particularly good for science anyway i certainly came away from it feeling that i knew as much as i could possibly absorb about how life works and uh, it's certainly the closest i'll ever get to a nobel prize so thank you paul it really is appreciated and again thank you for your time today thank you what is Life is available now and really is a book that anyone can read and feel much cleverer afterwards. Next week, we're going to go rambling with podcasting behemoth Adam Buxton to chat about 80s childhoods, pop culture and coping with grief. I'll see you then. <laughs>